0: FUBAR Radio presents... FUBAR Radio
1: presents... Politics on FUBAR. You're listening to Politics on FUBAR. I'm John Elledge. I'll be with you for the next hour to discuss some of the big issues in Britain today and to completely ignore the ridiculous ones like the entirely obnoxious debate about the silencing of Big Ben. I promise that's absolutely the only time we'll be mentioning Big Ben in the show. I've, I've been a journalist for a long time now. I've written about lots of different areas of public policy in my career. I've covered the NHS. I've, I've read a lot about housing and transport and infrastructure. But education is by far the one people are most likely to get exercised about. It's the one that normal people, by which I mean you know, non-journalists, will most likely to want to talk to me about. And I think that's probably because it's, it's universal, isn't it? You know, everyone has an opinion because everyone went to school. And a lot of people, most people possibly, still bear the scars of that experience. You know, exam anxiety dreams are incredibly common both in Britain and elsewhere. I I still have endless dreams about doing my A-levels, which is slightly ridiculous because that's nearly half my lifetime ago now. Which raises all sorts of questions about the damage the system is doing to kids, doesn't it? Um, Then then there's the grammar schools debate. Selective schooling was was abolished in in much of the country in the 1960s. But even today, politicians still talk about it in deeply personal terms. Either because, like Theresa May, they feel the system worked out very well for them, thank you very much. Or or because, like the former Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott, the 11-plus exam made them feel like a failure at at a very tender age. You know, throughout their lives, everyone is painfully aware of how their experience of education either made them or hurt them. It's it's a strange area of politics in, in other ways, too. For one thing, the people most deeply affected by it are, are not allowed to vote, which is, which is not brilliant for accountability. For another, changes in policy often take a very long time to take effect. And it can be years before we know what effect a particular policy had, if, if we ever do. The third difficulty is that people are very given to dismissing evidence that contradicts their own experience. You know, to go back to, to grammar schools again, all the statistics say that they're a terribly bad thing because the, the schools themselves may be fantastic. But the damage done to, to those who get sent off to the non-selective schools, that, that ends up being bigger than the gains you get from those who go to grammars. Yet those who support selective education won't have any of this. Grammar schools are good schools, they'll say. They just won't listen to the evidence. Perhaps the biggest reason it's such a difficult area of politics is it's not clear how much difference politics can actually make so much of academic achievement isn't really about schools or teachers at all. It's about who your parents are, you know, whether, they read, whether you, they read to their children, whether they value education themselves. And that's not something a government can change through legislation. But that, that's not stopped everyone from trying. Tony Blair famously said his three priorities would be education, education, education. He didn't mention that he meant tuition fees, tuition fees and tuition fees. Uh, and, and the years I, I spent covering education were a particularly exciting time for it because Michael Gove was in office and he wanted to change everything. He expanded Blair's Academy's programme, which took schools out of the hands of councils. He allowed parents to set up new free schools. He reformed the curriculum to try and raise standards. The same government also tripled university tuition fees, taking them from 3000 to £9,000 a year. Um, and a few years on, we're starting to see the fallout from all those changes. You know, some, there's some debate over whether Gove's attempts to raise standards worked, which we'll, we'll be talking about in a minute. This year's graduates are leaving university with absolutely enormous student debt, and, and the government is now talking about raising the interest rates on that debt, which is which is lovely of them. I haven't even mentioned further and vocational education, which which nearly half the population go through, but which tends to be entirely ignored by almost everybody. I, I stopped writing about education full-time when when I joined the New Statesman in, in 2014, so I'm, I'm a little bit behind on, on what's happening with a lot of these issues. But luckily, today we're going to be joined by a whole group of clever people who are going to tell me. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to Laura McInerney, who's a former teacher herself and who now edits the newspaper Schools Week, and she knows more about education than just about anyone alive, to be honest. We've got a great panel to discuss exam results, tuition fees and other difficult subjects. And at the end of the show, I'm going to be talking to the sex and relationships educator, Justin Hancock, about sex education. Partly, I think, because it's an underreported and pretty important topic. But also, I suspect, because my producer thinks it's funny to make me talk about sex quite a lot. As ever, if you'd like to comment on anything in the show today, please do get in touch. You can tweet us on at Radio. Or you can email us on politics at fubaradio.com. On on Twitter today, you can also answer our poll. Uh, Today we're asking, do you agree with students paying £9,000 fees for university? It's going to be a nail-bite to this one, I can tell. In a moment, I'm going to be reviewing the week's news with journalist Helen Locke.
2: We'll be straight back
1: after this trailer.
2: Fubar Radio presents... So the question is, if there's one thing you could leave in the past, what would it be and why? Mark Lay says, Me, the music, nights out, and the drugs were all better, in brackets, in general. Everything was cheaper. There weren't constant remakes of films I liked. I had a far easier job that paid a lot more money, and I wasn't as fat and got more pussy. Fuck my life now, send me back. <laughs> Who's this? Who's that? Mark Lake. <laughs> oh, Yo, man, that was, that was so honest. A,
3: that sounds like someone approaching their 40s. Every Monday. Sarah Love and my sticky.
2: From 4 pm.
3: Fubar Radio.
1: You're listening to Politics on Foobah with me, John Elledge. I'm joined now by the journalist Helen Locke, formerly an editor of The Guardian's Higher Education Network. Uh, we're going to review the week's news. Hey, Helen, how are you doing? Hey. hey. I have to ask, it's a pretty big time of year in, in education journalism with A-levels and then GCSE results coming out. Are you are, Have you enjoyed it this year? Are you, are you
0: excited? Yeah. yeah, it's been pretty busy. Um, and there's just quite a lot of interesting stuff happening with the changes to GCSEs. Um, And it just feels like there's more pressure every year on young people as well in terms of, like, getting into university and everything like that. It's sort of building up every single year.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this. The fact that exam anxiety dreams are so common, like, they're Mm. fairly universal. It does kind of make you wonder, like, how badly are we screwing people up with these high-pressure exams at an early age?
0: Yeah, and now they've changed it to, like, a nine. Like, a nine is, like, a top A star and only 3% (laughs) of people get it for GCSE. It's like, wow, I don't know, just... I couldn't have cope with that when I was young. <laughs> yeah,
1: they keep fiddling with it. Just any- anyway, so yeah. you've you've picked some of the other bigger news stories of the week for us to talk about. What 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 are we going to talk about?
0: Um, yeah, well, I thought um, basically there's just a f- there's a funny sort of higher education story that interests me because that's what I'm used to covering. Um, but it is kind of one of those stories that probably wouldn't have got picked up if it wasn't kind of a sleepy August afternoon, um, which was yesterday the ONS uh, published some data saying that 97% of people who are international students leave after their degree rather than staying. And the reason why it got so much attention, it was on newsnight and stuff, is because it's just really embarrassing to Theresa May. Um,
1: yeah, because cause she really went big on this as Home really Secretary, went big on it. didn't she? Yeah, no, I, this, this was when I was covering education myself and the entire yeah. sector, you know, public, private, left and right, really disliked Theresa yeah. May as Home Secretary because she was just undermining the entire education sector.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's just so important to like, we've really sent out like a pretty bad message to international students around the world that we don't really want yeah, them here. Not welcome. And, you know, we have seen declines. So it's like, as it turns out, they're all obeying the law, more or less. And yeah. It's um, just a funny story. Really. And,
1: it's a good, it, and, you know, international students are a sort of great soft power tool for Britain, aren't they? I mean, you know, people yeah. come here, study for three years, have fond memories of the country. They're more likely to kind of go home and take a positive image of yeah. of Britain than...
0: It, yeah, exactly. And now they're all going to sort of like America and Canada and Australia instead. So that's something that we, and that's something because we've got such good universities, that's something that we really have as a sort
1: of. Yeah, no, it's thing. after the US, I think Britain has the second best university system in the world yeah. in most measures. And it was a massive British export industry, which, which Theresa May has been steadily throttling for the past seven yeah. years. And <laughs> yeah. now it turns out the data was wrong. So that's, this is fine. Yeah. This is fine. Yeah,
0: it'll be interesting to see if something changes now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well luckily we haven't made any sort of major national decisions on on the basis of incorrect the
0: <laughs> yeah. completely wrong information yeah. yeah um yeah so other stories that came out this week um there's been a sort of bubbling away a, an ongoing debate about women only train carriages again
1: mm, that one um, does keep coming up i
0: know it? i know i see i did think that when it came out i was like really talking about this again it was two years ago um but I't I do know I saw some interesting arguments um this time round i don 't know if the women's equality party were as big last time uh this was out, but I thought sophie from it, the leader from it was pretty good on she sort of put she basically was just saying like this is just changing women's behavior again um, it's a bit
1: victim blaming isn't it yeah it like- and it
0: <laughs> and the other thing I thought about it was, it was yeah it's victim blaming a little bit, and it's also just kind of what would happen if something happened and they weren't sitting in the right part of the train or whatever. Yeah,
1: someone um, somewhere is going to say well she was she was asking for it. I know she and a, it sort of leads yeah, to a whole set Because there was the, some p- Neanderthal who say that. So. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, but then the, I have seen some pretty, you know, some people saying well you know if this happens in other countries and it works okay and like maybe it's not the worst idea in the world. Um, but then like yeah someone, I think it was Victoria Richards posted a piece that she'd done at the time about living in Tokyo and they do it there apparently. But, um, yeah, I just kind of thought that um, in Britain, would it really work? Because I kind of feel like loads of people just wouldn't pay attention to it.
1: And it just—it also feels like it's something that comes from a very different culture. Like, we don't yeah, have that, any sort of segregation by, yeah. by gender or anything else, really, in that way.
0: Yeah, basically. exactly. And you can totally see, like, people just being like, no, I'm just going to sit there. <laughs> um, and there'd be, like, a... Daily Mail outrage. So yeah, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's worth the extra fuss in terms of. I think it's much more important to put an emphasis on changing mm. the behaviour of men on public transport. Um,
1: I mean, the, the, the reason it's come up again, I think, is the Labour MP and and Jeremy Corbyn fan Chris Williamson has been pushing it as yeah. as an idea, and it's not it's not necessarily one you would expect to come from the left of politics, is it?
0: Yeah, it's a bit like yeah like sort of changing women's behaviour it's quite conservative like Mm. conservative in its socially conservative in its nature I suppose Um, which is slightly odd yeah Um, but he just he's just brought it up again yeah Stay, staying
1: do. with the Labour Party now, I understand you wanted you want to talk about, I mean, there isn't a vacancy. Jeremy Corbyn seems reasonably well ensconced, but mm. nonetheless, people are sort of debating who, who may one day follow him in the late 2030s, or whenever it is.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, and I believe that was something else you wanted to talk about.
0: Oh, yeah, well, um, I just saw this this morning that uh, Len McCluskey had said that they... The trade union the, leader. Tra- so. Trade l- yep. union leader, yeah. Um, he has tipped Emily Thornbury as a potential... Uh, another candidate who could take over when Corbyn goes, if that happens. Um, Which I just thought was kind of interesting. Um, I think it's obvious that lots of people are wanting to have a a woman leading the party because it's slightly getting a bit embarrassing that they haven't had a female leader ever. It is
1: weird now, isn't it? It's getting weird. Yeah. <laughs> also, there have been very few big Labour Party elections that women have won at all. I think mm. it's Harriet Harman was elected deputy. Yeah. And Margaret Beckett, I believe, was also elected by the entire party as deputy. But I mean, even like like I, I covered the the mayoral elections mm. this year as a part of my day job, and it was quite obvious how women female candidates really didn't do very well in those Mm. internal elections either like they kept going to blokes mm,
0: it should yeah it should be but i don't know why that is or what's going on but it's sort of getting a bit it really needs to change um i don't know how good she would be as a candidate like she i quite like her like um maybe he thinks that she'll kind of be a unifying candidate Mm. Um, I love
1: Emily She's my she's my MP. In fact, she's food by oh, really? she's food by Radio's MP. Of in fact, course, and
0: she's another Islington MP. Yeah,
1: so, so yeah, she's just down the road. Um, but no, I, I, one of my favourite moments of election night a couple of months ago was. It, it, people turned it into a gift. That bit, yeah. It? It was just like she just looked so pleased with I know, herself she was so brilliant. On, on national television, saying, "Well, there we are then, haven't we done well?"
0: Yeah, and, just being like, "We're going to form yeah. a government." Yeah. you know, we're going to go to the Queen. We're going to form a government. Um, you know, she's so assured, um, and, and they did do really well. She's so assured mm. that they were going to just take over, and it was it was pretty great. Um, yeah. So, there any-
1: oh yeah, and the uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, mm brexit infects everything like some kind of plague obviously but but um i I believe you picked out a story about a a european who got a rather nasty letter from the home office
0: yeah that's right um yeah so this is i guess yeah another sort of higher ed related story but it sort of highlights an issue that affects loads of people because i'm sure the home office is sending these letters out to like everyone who they don't like um, so but unique just unique
1: combination of <laughs> cruelty and incompetence. Yeah,
0: really? exactly, yeah. And it's just like, imagine getting a letter being like, you have to leave in a month and you've got a husband here and you've been here for 10 years. Um, but it does seem to get picked up when it's someone with this kind of profile. And I think um, it's it's that whole feeling, a bit like with the international students of... We're just sending out a really horrible message to around the world. Um, Britain is
1: closed, basically. Britain's we closed. don't want you go away. I
0: don't care if you're a neuroscient- neuroscientist yeah. or something. Just please, just leave. Yeah. Um, and that, I think that's why it always gets quite an emotional reaction from.
1: I've always kind of felt like all the people complaining about people coming over here. They, they, they should try living in a country that nobody wants to move to. Mm. because then they'll see how great it was living one that loads of people wanted to move to. But, you know, they'll, they'll find that out for themselves soon enough, the way yeah. things are going. So. Yeah. But, I'll, um, Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to talk to you. You're
0: welcome. Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, next up, I'm going to be speaking to Laura McInerney, the editor of the Newspaper Schools Week. But first, let's hear from, from Justin Greening, our Secretary of State for Education, and Angela Rayner, her Labour shadow. Uh, discussing arguably the biggest education topic of the last 12 months, indeed the last 70 years, grammar scores.
0: As the Prime Minister has said, this government is committed to building a country that works for everyone, not just the privileged few. And we believe that every person should have the opportunity to fulfil their potential, no matter what their background or where they're from. Education is at the heart of this ambition. The landscape for schools has changed hugely in the last 10, 20, 30 years. We now have a whole variety of educational offers available. There will be no return to the simplistic binary choice of the past where schools separate children into winners and losers, successes or failures. This government. Our success since 2010 and to create a truly 21st century si- school system. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Despite that waffle, the cat Aww. is finally
4: out of the bag. The go- new grammar
3: schools in England but not not in this house Mr. Speaker we didn't even hear the word grammar then but through leaks to the press and a private meeting of the members opposite so much for the one nation government that we were promised. Has she read the IFS report entry into grammar schools in England? If so perhaps she remembers the conclusion that among high achievers those who are eligible for free school meals or live in poorer neighborhoods are significantly less likely to go to grammar school. The OECD, the Sutton Trust and even the government's
2: own social nobilities are and their chief inspector of schools have all cited the evidence against this policy.
1: You're listening to Politics on Food by Radio with me, John Ellidge. I'm now joined by uh, the editor of Newspaper Schools Week and indeed a former teacher, uh, Miss Laura McInerney. Hey, Laura, how are you doing?
5: Hello, I'm okay, thank you. Day after GCSE resort, so a little tired.
1: Yeah, busy week for you guys. And they put it straight after A Levels Week as well, which is, you know, that's, I just don't think the government policy has been set with the needs of, of education journalists in mind, to be honest.
5: No, we have to think about the children but it was an exciting day for many of them there was about 600,000 people getting grades yesterday so that's about as many people as live in Sheffield were yesterday getting GCSE grades
1: Yeah, and it's, it's easy to get blasé about this as, as, as you grow up and get old but actually, you know, when you're a teenager these are incredibly important life events, aren't they? These, are, these feel like you know the biggest thing in the world that day
5: It's also really important for parents so you have to remember those 600,000 children all have parents and grandparents and siblings some of whom may be hoping that their brother or sister To fail their exams um but it is yeah it's a really big day and it's important because ultimately it then affects your next steps which college do you go to what job do you take what apprenticeship do you do
1: Mm. so they've changed the gcse grading system it's now numbers rather than letters i mean is, is this really just an attempt to keep everyone confused the whole time what's what's going on what are the changes made of
5: so there are purposes to this. The important thing to remember is that it was only English and Math this year, but it will be other subjects next year. And by 2019, instead of having A star to G, everyone will get a nine to one. Nine is the top grade on purpose. One of the things we know that over time is generations tend to get smarter. So children do just generally drift towards braininess. And because of that, we sometimes need to add a grade. That's why the A star grade was added. Going to an A star star is not only a bit cumbersome, but if you're trying to do any spreadsheet analysis, it's a real nightmare. So we went to a number system. And it does mean that in the future, if there is genuine evidence that children have got brighter, we could add a 10 or an 11 grade and so on. It also um, in the past meant that about in some subjects, we were getting lots of children getting A stars. So people typically don't do music or drama unless they're pretty good at them. So you could end up with around 20% of children getting an A or an A star. And it meant that you couldn't tell who were the really, really good ones. Mm -hmm. So the nine is an extra additional at the top. What's slightly problematic is nothing has really changed for the children at the bottom. And the government, for some reason, decided to make the four a standard pass and a five a strong pass. But it sounds a little bit like if you've got a three, a two or a one, you are essentially substandard. So it's not a helpful thing at the bottom end, but for those children who are very good—if you're exceptional at music or exceptional at English—then it's great for you.
1: This has always been something that confused me about the system because it was the same with GCSEs, wasn't it? A C was seen as the pass grade, but there were Ds, Es, Fs, Gs. You know, it, it, there's a whole variety of fail grades there. And if you're like, tell it, like, what what's the—is there any logic to this at all? What's yeah. the thinking?
5: So they weren't originally called fail grades; they are actually called pass grades. C was considered a good pass, so it was always called officially, the good pass rate. And the reason they brought them in originally was because um, they put together two different qualifications. One was sat by children in grammar schools and one was sat by children who didn't make it in. Mm. They mushed the two together and kind of said the middle point is the point at which was the old bottom of the grammar school one. So that's why C was considered a good pass. But the rest were pass grades. It's only really in the last maybe seven or eight years that we've started this fail word popping in. So a D was somehow a fail. And that came about because when the Labour government decided to start bringing measurements of schools in they said we're going to use the C grade and above as the rate at which we're going to measure the school. And that is when this shift came. It should never have been the case that a D or an E or an F is a fail for a child.
1: It does feel like that's conflating two different things. There's like measuring the children's achievement and um, what they're going to do next in life. And measuring the school's achievement. And we we often have one set of numbers to measure those two things, but they're very different ideas, right?
5: Exactly. And unfortunately, about 20 years ago, when David Blunkett was bringing in these school measures, it was important. Comprehensives were not in a good state in the 1990s. There needed to be more of a focus. So they brought these measures in around GCSEs and said it's no longer acceptable that only five in every hundred children is passing a few of them. You need to get more over the line. Unfortunately in that 20 years it has become conflated and so children's achievement is seen as a reflection of adults work, those teachers work and the pressure has ramped up, the language has changed and we found ourselves in this very odd situation where yesterday not only do you have children Panicking about their GCSEs, but on Wednesday night I had head teachers ringing me, you know, wondering whether they should be going in and resigning the next day. They're really stressed out about this. So, you know, it's a bit of give and take. It needed to get better, Mm. but it is a bit of a problem now.
1: And there is also this this phrase you hear, you know, teaching to the test. If 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 you're measuring schools by their results in these exams then they're going to focus a lot more on on getting the kids through these exams. But there there should be more to education than that, right? It's not just about getting a piece of paper at the end of the year.
5: Yeah, so the school's chief inspector, Amanda Spielman, has said that from this year, the school's inspectorate, who go in and check and see whether or not children are being taught properly, will in fact be inspected on how broad their curriculum is. So... Even though you're going to have this test measure, you're going to have to teach really well and make sure this kid gets the grade, you're also going to have to make sure that other things are not going by the wayside and that children do still get access to music when they're 12. Lots of schools are pulling back on music education at the moment, for example. Um, That's going to have to stay in there. Otherwise, you do risk your Ofsted grade, which is the other measure by which schools are looked at.
1: To what extent is all this just a reflection of the fact that politicians have an urge to muck around with things. Like if, if education ministers often don't serve in the post for, for that long. Like Michael Gove was around for quite a long time, actually. But generally speaking, they'll do like 18 months or something. And in terms of their own career and their own end-of-term grades, they will feel the need to be able to point to something that they actually did. So it sometimes feels to me like where a lot of these things, not just in education, but in all sorts of bits of public policy, ministers are pushing changes so that they can say they made a change.
5: That's definitely the case. And also, they don't always understand what came before. There's a great game in the TV show MasterChef that they sometimes run called a relay race. And each person in the team has 15 minutes with a set of ingredients. And the first one sets it off and then they leave after 15 minutes. The next one comes in and they have to try and work out what's in the oven. It's half baked. Was I supposed to be boiling these potatoes? (laughs) And that's what's happened with these GCSE reforms. Michael Gove had a plan and it involved all the students across all of the grades. And Nicky Morgan then came in and, and didn't really understand it and said, we're going to have five grade there's the strong Justin Greening's come in and she's tried to do something else and you're right that baton passing doesn't work well it would be nice if we could get to a situation where maybe you had to be a junior minister and get promoted up to being a senior minister like you would with most jobs
1: Yes. Now, there are something I've been thinking about a lot this week. There are certain people in the cabinet who you can tell are there not because of any talent or understanding of policy, but purely because within the internal politics of the Conservative Party, it's a bit difficult to sack, not mentioning any Chris Graylings in particular. But, you know, there there are definitely ministers there who, if they were working in the private sector, they would probably not have survived at the top for quite so long, I suspect.
5: I think so we've certainly seen over the last few years as well that there is a consideration sometimes put in to where the education secretary themselves went to school I don't think it was a coincidence that Justin Greening has claimed to be the first mainstream comprehensively educated secretary of state she is I mean that's fair enough David Mm -hmm. Blunkett went to uh, a a state school but it was a special needs school so it's difficult to say it was a comprehensive school Um, but actually she was and I do think that had a bearing on her being selected and she's very good at some things but I can't say that when I speak to Justin Greening, I feel a great sense of passion and burning (laughs) for education policy. And that is causing some problems.
1: Do you think both we in the media and people in politics sometimes overestimate the extent to which politicians can affect change in, in the education system?
5: They can't affect change often in the classrooms themselves, that's fair enough in terms of the teaching. But the exam reform system pretty much can only be changed by a politician. And that is quite surreal because it's a really important part of what happens in schools. And it is only ever reformed by somebody who is usually trying to make a political point, lasts about three years and then walks off before it's actually sat by anybody.
1: Yes, now the whole system does feel very strange. Michael Gove is long gone, but his reforms we're finding out now whether what, what they'll actually mean, and we'll find out some point in the future whether they worked. Who knows who will be by them? Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Laura. It's been great to talk to you. In a moment, we're going to have our in-studio discussion where we're going to be talking about uh, what tuition fees is going to come up. I imagine we'll do more on the GCSE reforms. There's, there's all sorts of crazy stuff we can talk about. But uh, first, we're going to hear from the general public. Um, what do they think of tuition fees?
2: I think that's excessive. Um... It's very difficult because, you know, you don't want to have a burden of £9,000 over your head for the next 20, 30, 40 years or whatever, your working career. Um, So what's better? I don't know. Um, Maybe it was better that they they, um, just pay the normal uh, tax and obviously, hopefully, that they're going to, because they've gone to further education, they're going to have have better school, better jobs, whatever, uh, and they'll pay more tax in in the long run.
1: It's total shit. Right? It is total shit. It's unbelievable that you can charge the future generation to uh, to be bankrupt before they exist. Absolutely fucking disgusted. We've come this far in society that we must be able to actually, you know, I mean, dare I say, people have died in the Second World War fighting for democracy, right? right? People have fought and killed and died so that people would have this system, so that the youth would have, so their children would have this system to be able to actually go forward and contribute to this world. So what what the politicians have done by charging for uh, university places um, is is just completely crippling the kids, you know our children, the the future. Who's the future? It's the tu- it's you lot, not me. You're listening to Politics on Food by Radio. I'm John Edge, and today we are talking about education. Uh, next up, it's our, our studio discussion. Where we well, going we're going to start with a question about tuition fees. I think that's that's a nice, uncontroversial subject. Uh, joining me in the studio today, we have Alfie Packham, who edits the Guardian studi- uh, the Guardian Students Network. Hey, Alfie, how Hi. Doing? We have Mike uh, Bonaruto. An activist, campaigner, and executive director of Shape History. Hello. Thanks for being here, Mike. No worries, John. And we have Catherine Riley, who's a professor of urban education at UCL and co-founder of the uh, arts education charity, I think, The Art of Possibilities.
3: Hi. Hello. Welcome to everybody.
1: Um, thank you all for, for being here today. So, so tuition fees are pretty, pretty high these days, right? Like, I mean, it's now kids are graduating with sort of 50 grand of, of debt, including, li- including living costs. And is, a lot of people say it's not so much like a tax, uh, it's not so much like a debt, it works more like a tax, but this is still nonetheless quite a lot of debt to be starting life with. So, so Alfie, how, how do you think the, we're, we're starting to see people graduating with this debt now, how do you think the system is bedding in?
2: Well, I'm one of them. Uh, I paid uh, £9,000 fees, um i remember sitting down when i was 17 with my dad um before we paid uh, before becoming a student and my dad sitting next to me and he's usually he's a careful bloke he reads the small print um and him saying to me you know this is this will be the cheapest loan you ever take out probably uh and it turned out not to be so um and uh yeah, I felt, I felt, I felt kind of. I remember feeling very surprised about that, but uh, you know, apparently it was, it was, it was in the small print somewhere. But uh, I think a lot of people in in the first wave of this, um, uh, people like me, were kind of felt caught out by that because
1: yeah, um, the, the government has varied the interest rate and is now talking about selling off some of the debt
2: to, that's it yeah commercial yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> investors yeah it undermines your trust a bit they froze the threshold as well at which you start paying it back well, well from a politician's point
1: of view the advantage of screwing over some 17 year olds is they can't fight back so. that's true that is true Mike
6: where do you stand on this one I think equally like I, I remember I graduated 2009 and it was told to me that this was the cheapest loan you'd ever get it was the most flexible loan you'd ever get and um, and therefore I took it I went to uni but I studied journalism um, and then took a, a, a career turn into PR and then eventually now run Shape History which is a social change company so we work with PR but it's mainly for charities and with that nature I think when I'm employing people I don't really look at their Education in terms of their university, I look at their experience, their life experience, and that's more important. I think for it's definitely for their their um their experience within the workplace. So when we look at it carefully, and we look at the the economics of actually going to university now being so expensive at nine thousand pounds, is it far better off? It, 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 the question has to be asked: Are there some courses that are worth paying nine grand for more than others? Mm, no, one of the strange things about the policies i think the expectation was that
1: there would be a range of different fees on option uh, on offer originally so you know you yes. might pay 9000 pounds for oxbridge or ucl or whatever it might be but if you went to i don't know the university of southampton solent or something the expectation would be fees would be lower That hasn't really happened, has it? Everyone's gone straight for the top. I mean, Catherine, you've been watching education policy for for some years. I mean, where do you stand? Yeah,
3: I I was one of those people who benefited um, a few years ago um, from uh, free tuition. And when I left university, I went to uh, Eritrea and I taught as a volunteer teacher for a couple of years and I then came back and made the decision to teach in inner city schools. So for me, I didn't, I didn't have that round my neck, but I kind of felt I had to con- I wanted to contribute to society in that really positive way. I think the issue now is partly the money and it's partly how we treat young people. And I would really like to see a a reduction um, so that young people know that society is investing in them. And why I don't just say, oh, yeah, scrap all fees is because I'm also very aware of the underinvestment in other other areas of education in in early years and all the money that now has been taken out of our inner city schools but we have to show young people that they are the future and Mm. i don't think we are doing that at all now
1: no i i I would tend to agree i think uh, it's it's also worth remembering that a lot of these guys aren't just graduating with quite a lot of debt housing is a lot less affordable than it once been wages have not really been going up for the last 10 years it does feel like a a very difficult time to be sort of the starting off in life, doesn't it, Alfie?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, you've seen uh, recent figures from the Sutton Trust saying that, uh, you know, the number of pupils anticipating um, a university place uh, is at an eight-year low. Um, you know, you're just starting to see uh, the, the, this, the, the effect of these fees on the culture at universities as well in a kind of subtle way. I think it forces, you know, this, this um, the idea of the student as customer it forces you into this sort of high-pressure position of thinking of your education uh, less as, uh, as an opportunity for personal growth in a kind of uh, slightly abstract way, but in a very important way, and more as a, a financial investment and that puts your pressure on, puts pressure on your career choices and, and sort of things that maybe pr- previous generations weren't thinking so much about.
6: Definitely. Just to, just to add to that as well, I think that the, there is something still to be said about the value of university education and that, that three-year time or that two-year time where you can spend that time to kind of personal, uh, focus on your personal growth and, and really kind of focus on how you can develop as a human being. Um, because I think me, uh, from personal experience, perspective at 17, 18 years old going off to uni, I think I I needed those three years to kind of figure out exactly who I was and what I wanted to be and it gave me that space to do it. But in the same way, I think perhaps workplaces just need to become a lot more flexible enabling students or young people to have that same kind of experience but working within and facilitating them within a workplace environment where they're not um, where well, they're not having to incur such uh, high fees yeah. similar to the GTP that used to exist around teachers training where you could train on the job and actually get paid for it I think it's changed since but that kind of scheme within the workplace I think I think the government could do a lot towards supporting and facilitating that I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment because I, 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 I started editorialising
1: at the very top of this and saying I think that's the tourism fees <laughs> are terrible which I probably shouldn't have done um, but there is an argument firstly that it's the students themselves who will benefit the most from their degree in terms of their sort of earning potential and also a lot more people go to university these days we're now looking at around 50 percent of the cohort whereas in the 1960s when when university was free it was you know something like 10 percent and and the state can't uh, can't afford to send an entire cohort to university like that so Catherine, is it possible that actually this is this is just an entirely reasonable thing to ask well, kids to contribute towards? I,
3: I, I started by saying earlier that I think it's about the balance of things. So we've got the balance wrong. And I think it's about the way society is viewing the young people. Because if, if we look at the world we're in and we look at this bizarre world of, you know, of hate and untruth, but also a world of possibilities. The possibilities all come from young people. It's it's young people who are going to be changing the world. We look at climate change, it's going to be young people who are going to be doing that. And we have to be saying we're investing... In these young people and that there are jobs for them and that there are opportunities. And at the moment, the kind of the way we talk about these issues is always in such a negative way. So I think that we have to do something about tuition fees. I wouldn't go the whole hog for the reasons that I've said, because I think there are so many other things that we actually have to invest in as well. And some of it will be symbolic to say, you know what, you're really important. You're the future. You're going to change the world. And we're investing in you in all kinds of ways.
1: Is there a danger? Do you, do you guys think that um, because people are now starting out with with quite a lot of debt when they're twenty one, 21, 22, that they're not taking risks? They're not going out and doing creative things. They're not thinking, "Hey, I'll start my own business." Because there's a lot of pressure to get a, a decent wage and and just trying you know pay off that debt and get on the housing ladder.
6: I think a lot of um, there's a there's a need now for a lot of young people to start their own businesses, which is really really fascinating and and definitely with schemes such as. Um, Uh, the SEIS scheme which allows young people to get investment for their young uh, for their young uh, sorry their enterprises Um, is fascinating but I I, from my own personal perspective I don't know whether at sort of coming out at 16 well sorry at 19 20 years old whether I'd want to start my own business there and then I think I needed about six years experience seven years experience trialing things out and learning what's best so but to, to your question John I think that 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 young people would also be deciding on uh, roles that have a slightly higher salary attached to them to pay off that debt rather than actually roles which which truly sort of suit their values and ambitions in life. Mm, I think a lot of my cynicism around fees is because the whole system seems predicated on
1: the assumption of the economic economic rationality of the average 17 year old I did an English degree because I thought it would be easier to meet girls doing English than if I did physics. So I'm not I'm not entirely sure I would have made a different decision if there had been fees. Maybe I would have. But I'm, I'm just slightly cynical about whether at, at such a young age you're in a position to be making these, these decisions about what kind of careers you're going to open yourself up to.
3: I, I think the key thing is that it's predicated on a view that really what, you know, you go to university, you get your degree and really what you're supposed to be about is earning lots and lots of money and therefore if you earn lots and lots of money then you can pay this off and it doesn't really. Yeah matter and we're not saying you know what you are the young people of the future you're here to contribute to society you're here to gain from it you're here to have a rich and full life and it's all of these things and at the moment we're just focused too much on one thing and we're not looking in the round we're not looking at issues like housing for example which is so impossible for young people when I was a young teacher in London and found myself uh, semi-homeless um, at that time, the Greater London Authority, the GLC, had a what they call a hard to let. So y- there was was accommodation. Uh, in what was council housing then. And I lived in a place called Dog Kennel Hill for a couple of years, very, very happily. <laughs> was, um, it, was it
1: well-named?
3: Yeah, <laughs> there it, it, it really is. I haven't made that up. It's it's an a, a, a interesting place to live. But how we even think about our housing, how we talk about our housing, you know, how we talk about this nasty thing called social housing, where kind of nasty, uncared for people live, is all part of the same problem. That we're not saying, you know, our young people, who they are how we're going to grow, how they're going to develop how they're going to enrich their lives and we need to change the way that we're talking about young people. Just and I think politicians really need to do that.
6: Just to add to that, I would completely agree. And, and if you if you shift the value from a monetary perspective or a revenue perspective into a values-based perspective, you can start to see the type of businesses that young people are starting today. Shape History itself is a social enterprise, so it doesn't set out to make a profit at all when working with charities. But in that nature, there's so many. You look, you go down to Google Campus in Old Street in Shoreditch and you just see the amount of stuff startups that are, that are starting up for young people under the age of 22, 23 and each of them have a social purpose, a social nature to what they're integral to their business. They're there to make money but they're not there to make massive amounts of profits and if they are they're reinvesting that back in and I think as as you've been rightly saying that kind of nature of what young people are looking for now in work needs to almost be pushed back onto the education system to look at actually how are you valuing monetary and uh, and revenue based um, things (laughs) for lack of a better word. um, and, and could it be more about kind of how do you benefit others, which I think you're alluding to? Yeah. One group of people
1: who do clearly value monetary matters are the vice chancellors of our university system, some of whom are earning spectacularly good money. Um, and the former Labour minister, Andrew Adonis, has been taking it on himself to, yeah. to, to try and start a, a debate yeah. about that. I mean, so, so really what I'm asking is, is a good vice chancellor worth a quarter of a million pounds, do we think?
6: Uh, you on. could you could ask the same question about any top of CEO. You could ask yeah. the top CEOs yeah. of charities: Are they worth that money? I, I would say, I would say yes. I, controversially, uh, Okay, yeah. Make your argument. What's the? I think if you're going to pay someone. Um, when when you set out in life and you get your degree if you choose that route then you have a certain value that's attached to your experience and your experience is very little therefore your value is very little but as your experience increases and increases and increases it does jump and jump and jump in terms of the value that you can bring to that business or to that enterprise now if for instance a CEO of a university can come in and triple the amount of income that that university makes then why are they not worth that money if the money is then being reinvested back in the right way to benefit the students that are there, Alfie,
2: they're in. What do your readers well, think of there's this? the rub, you see, because you want as much transparency as possible as to where your fees are going. Um, and well, what are you seeing? I mean, if you're a tr- humanities student paying um, triple what you might have done as ten years ago, uh, you'd like to see some return on that. But what you're seeing is uh, fattening uh, way, you know, salaries for your vice chancellor and some nice-looking building popping up that's not uh, in the science department. Uh, uh, that's you know, that looks good on a prospectus, but it's not gonna help you. Um, the role of buildings
1: <laughs> in universities is a whole fascinating topic in itself sure. because, like, people do tend to invest in them because they're visible. Exactly. So, one of the ways, as I understand it, a lot of universities have tried to justify the nine grand fees is to build better student accommodation.
3: Yeah, but, but what I want to disagree with you about on uh, uh, on the salaries is, you know, there has to be a, a limit where, you know, okay, yeah, you're working hard, reason man, but some of the the figures that people are earning, I just think, is simply. Unfair, and I kind of think that things like equity in society, if you look at the pay of cleaners in universities and you look at the pay of some of the vice chancellors, this is hugely problematic. Our society is becoming more divided, the gap between rich and poor is widening. I don't think that's pretty very good for society but the other thing is no one person in a university improves it <laughs> it mm, is exactly. the lecturers it is the supervisors it is all it is the other professors everybody really really working together um, I'd rather see a so pay the,
2: rise for junior academics.
3: Well, yes, mm. I, I'd quite like to see some more permanent jobs for junior mm, academics. Exactly. Um, so these are the things that are really, really important. And again, for the good of society, because I mean, those junior academics work really hard, got the qualifications and it's very, very hard to get a permanent job. Again, one of the issues about investing in young people for the future.
1: Just uh, a, an interesting coda to, to this conversations i mentioned Andrew Adonis's recent interventions on this subject he announced on twitter last night that he was going to be speaking on the subject at the universities uk conference issue, right. universities uk promptly replied that they had no idea this was happening and hadn't invited him right after which uh, <laughs> adonis said he'd been no platformed which is one way of dealing one way of trying to get yourself onto the agenda i suppose um, Catherine, i'd like to stay with you yeah. for a moment we've only got we've got a couple of minutes left okay. you've been you've been following a lot of these issues yeah. for, for some years mm-hmm. I'm just kind of interested in your take on which, which reforms have really had a positive impact, which have done damage, which have turned out to be completely irrelevant. Okay. So much of this stuff seems to be cyclical.
3: Yes. I, I think the reforms that have really made a positive difference, and I'll just i able to take one in, in the school sector, um, which was an initiative which, in fact, as it happens, Andrew Adonis had some involvement in, called the London Challenge. So the London Challenge, there was London London schools really not doing very well in all kinds of ways. So I was part, many, many, many people of a, of a programme that helped bring schools together. And what was so successful about it was, believe it or not, it was based on collaboration. It was based on putting schools together, people working together. It was built on capacity building. It worked because it was sharing leadership. It worked because it was actually about trying to fine housing for young teachers so it was it was not about the competition mm-hmm. it was not about this whole way of you know schools competing against each other and that has been enormously successful and, and sadly and now schools
1: now are the best, yes, in, in, best in Britain and
3: sadly now those London schools despite the for all just before election are losing money and the schools that are doing fantastic things are going to make it even more difficult so those reforms really really work and we know they work not just here but in different parts of the world
1: we are sadly running out of time but before we go i'm going to ask each of our panelists today to give us i mean no pressure or anything but what one thing would you change to to improve the the education system in this country who am i going to pick on first alfie go on um,
2: give us one change uh, contra- proper contracts for junior academics i think okay
1: that's a good one go. it's nice you're thinking about the, the start I, just, I don't know why you. I've
2: come out so strongly in favour of junior academics but it's just stuck in my head now <laughs> okay. and you put me I'm, under pressure John
1: I'm, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm
6: sure that's a good way of making friends in, the, in academia sure. Mike what you got I would, I would see a, a better level of education in general business studies um, whether regardless of what subject you're teaching um, when I came out of university I knew next to nothing about running a business and I've had to learn everything from scratch um, so I think there's a tremendous in the UK uh, in the UK there's a tremendous amount of support out there for young entrepreneurs to start their own social enterprises and businesses and ne- more needs to be done to either educate around business studies in the UK at any level or to be given Uh, young people an option when they get the chance to go to university do you go through the UCAS system or do you potentially go and start your own business or go through an apprenticeship Last but not least, Catherine.
3: Okay, my focus would be a different way of talking about schools, talking about schools as places of belonging and well-being. When young people feel they're safe and feel they belong, they achieve well. When they achieve well, they develop a sense of agency. That is a sense that what they do that can make a difference. I want to see that agency for young people, and it's more than exams. When they have a sense of agency in their schools, they think and believe, and quite rightly, that they can change society, and
1: that's what we need. Well, I'd like to thank all my guests for joining us today. That's Alfie Packham, Mike Bonarito, and Catherine Riley. Uh, coming up next, we're going to be looking into. Well, we're going to switch. We're just going to switch track slightly, and we're going to talk about sex education. I'm going to be speaking to the sex and relationships educa- educator Justin Hancock. To introduce my conversation with Justin, though, I'm going to play a clip from a TED talk by Cindy Gallup. Uh, it's an expert excerpt from her speech entitled "Make Love, Not Porn."
3: So, in an era where Hardcore porn is more freely and widely available on the internet than ever before and where kids are therefore able to access it at a younger and younger age than ever before. There is an entire generation growing up that believes that what you see in hardcore pornography is the way that you have sex. And this is particularly exacerbated because we live in a puritanical double standards culture where people believe that a teen abstinence campaign will actually work where parents are too embarrassed to have conversations about sex with their children and where educational institutions are terrified of being politically incorrect if they pick up those conversations. And so it's not surprising that hardcore pornography de facto has become sex education.
1: You're listening to Politics on FUBA with me, John Ellich. My last guest for today is Justin Hancock. Uh, Justin describes himself as a sex and relationships educator. He works with schools and online to try and plug some of the gaps in, in school education classes. This is... Um it's not a career choice that, that would have occurred to many people, I think. How did you, you get into this?
4: Um, well, yeah, it's not really a career for a lot of people, but um, I got into it through youth work uh, after an ill-advised law degree. Um, I retrained as a youth worker, and that was in the late 90s, around the time of the teenage pregnancy strategy. And a job came up around working in sex and relationships education, and I thought, that sounds good better learn how to do this
1: so what what was it that first um drew, drew you to it as a topic because obviously it's not it's not really about it, it is about sex but it's not about the kind of the the sort of the, the version of sex that we often think about is it it's explaining mm. stuff to kids i mean what was it that mm. appealed to you about that particular role
4: well when i first got into it i was working a lot with uh, young men around masculinities and mm. challenging homophobia and biphobia and stuff like that so i kind of got into it through that but the thing that continues to keep me interested is trying to um, get to those fundamental topics that we really need to be talking about rather than the, um, as you say, like the ins and outs and stuff. I think a lot of people think that sex education is about teaching people how to have blowjobs and stuff like that. And yeah, of course it's not at it's all. It's not at, at, all at all like, like that. Um, so so yeah. do you want
1: to give us some 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 idea of the sort of things it is about what are the kind of topics that you, you would be talking through with people on a day to day basis? I
4: mean I just heard Cindy talking about porn there and I'm a big fan of Cindy's and she likes my work too but I think porn isn't one of the topics that we really need to be talking about, I think we need to kind of go back a step and talk about the really fundamental stuff so to allow young people to kind of um, to talk about how they feel about themselves uh, to talk about the, the expectations placed on them around gender and sexuality to look at different kinds of relationships relationships and what a healthy relationship looks like but also to be critical of romantic relationships and what we're about that also to look at consent and communication about how everything really needs to be about choice and agency and that's like the center of any good sre or rse as we're now supposed to be calling it um and also looking at safer sex and all of the risks of sex not just those kind of biomedical you know stis and things
1: and but. how how do you a- approach this because just thinking back to my own adolescence when i, c- I can't remember if we had any sex education mm. at all i have to say but i i i think very few things would have made me want to th- the, the earth to open up and swallow me more mm. than a grown-up coming in to say hey let's let's talk about sex i mean how yeah. do you how do you kind of get people to to engage with this
4: well i think the the thing to do is to make it not about the grown-up because whenever the the grown up or the, the teacher or the youth worker or the sex educator is going into a room often they can be so anxious because their se- their own sex and relationship relationships education was so bad they can be so anxious that they kind of project those anxieties onto the young people and kind of talk at them. so what we need is kind of sex education where young people are able to talk to each other and you can do that through using lots of different kinds of learning methods and um to make it you know that based on kind of uh, individual work pairs work small group work and allowing young people to take part if they want to but we're with this project that i'm working on one of the projects i'm working on called do sre for schools it's about getting away from the teacher standing at the front of the classroom saying you know having to kind of brave it out and talk about orgasms and porn mm. and stuff you know we uh, want to make it much easier for the teacher so to, to make it more about the students
1: how do you think provision on, in this area in schools is at the moment? I mean, the schools really kind of
4: doing what they need to be doing. It's incredibly patchy, um, and one of the problems is we don't really know. But I, so I'm kind of going on what colleagues are telling me, and uh, when I speak to schools and coordinators in, in local authority areas. But you might get one or two schools in a local authority area who. Uh, have a really supportive head who really want to deliver this and have their staff trained and the, the their staff uh, teach SRE um, all the way through the year uh, but then but for the most part schools are just doing a little bit but not enough to be useful and often mm-hmm. it's kind of a it's a kind of a one off lesson here and there and they choose chose to choose to often choose to focus on the kind of topics around um, uh, preventing harm so like condoms contraception they're still showing pictures of diseased genitals you know to t- <laughs> teach about STIs still um, and also there's increasingly it's people. the message basically you really you don't want to have sex so this is the terrible stuff that will happen to you don't because you do, that, that's obviously going to work. I mean this is the thing young people are getting sick of sex education quite frankly <laughs> uh, and they're getting sick of that they're, they're sick of being taught about that people think that they can boil down really complicated issues to s- a really simple takeaway. So uh, one that I kind of uh, always rant about is consent. So that is a thing that's being taught more at the moment. But if your listeners and viewers are familiar with the tea and consent video, it's a two-minute-fifty-one video about consent and a lot of people think okay we've taught consent now uh, which is the most fundamental topic when it comes to sex and relationships is, is, is this the one
1: that says you know just because i wanted tea yesterday it doesn't mean i want tea now and yeah. so it's
4: don't give somebody tea if they're asleep and yeah. actually it's much more it's much more uh difficult to talk about consent it's much more more difficult complex and and actually a really interesting topic Um, and if you're teaching it properly young people can get really enthused about it and have tons of ideas and actually feel like they've they've learned something they can take away and practice and use but when they're just being talked at like that a lot of people particularly boys are just getting the message oh right so i just shouldn't rape anyone then Thanks for that. I mean, that is, that is a good message. I think there's certainly people in the world <laughs> please, who need to hear that if message. If you're listening, more. please don't rape anybody. But it's, um, it's much more complicated than that, right? Of
1: course, yeah. It's, yeah a, a lot of people who, who do commit well, effectively rape do not realise that that is what they're doing at the time, right? And this is why consent is so important. Right?
4: Well, a lot do. But, um, but consent is more than just yes means yes and no means no. Mm. It's, a, 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 it's a much broader and more complex area. Another reason this feels
1: like a, tr- a tricky area to me is is w- where parents fit in because, mm. you know, presumably there's a lot of parents who are very worried about the lack of sex education mm. or lack of good sex education and, or, or don't know how to handle it at home. Mm. But there will I'm sure be others who would really rather that this wasn't a thing at all and just mm-hmm. keep their kids away from it entirely. So how do you how do you navigate that debate?
4: I mean for the most part actually parents are really supportive of sex and relationships education in schools. The problem is that parents have also had bad sex and relationships education. And the thing is is that it's not just about the work doesn't need to just happen in schools, it needs to happen everywhere. So often teachers feel that they're unconfident and unskilled at delivering SRE. But actually parents may feel the same way too, because We, I mean, where do we learn all these things about how we can't talk about sex or how sex is difficult? It comes from our own sex and relationships education, right? So um, for the most part, people are really supportive of it, but they just don't know where to start, and people worry about saying the right things and doing the right things. So is there,
1: if we could condense this into a couple of minutes, that would be useful, but is there a kind of right approach? Is there a way of actually kind of having these conversations in a way that isn't awkward or embarrassing for anyone and that gets people mm. engaged in it? How do, you, how do you do this correctly?
4: Well, I think the thing, well, certainly if I'm talking to parents, but I guess this is also true for teachers and also all of us, really, is to keep it a conversation and to remember that um, that often means just pinning your ears back and listening to what somebody's got to say, particularly a young person, like... I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be sick of all the, you know, will have received a lot of lectures around sex and relationships, but never really got a chance to chat about these really quite interesting topics, uh, really valuable, challenging topics. So to kind of to listen, uh, to do it a little bit often, uh, just to keep it kind of like... um, uh, an ongoing kind of conversation if you're a parent it could be that it's the kind of thing that you have a chat about in the car once in a while or you know w- when you're washing up you just drop a few things into a sentence you don't have to ask personal questions but you could talk about stories in soaps or tv or whatever people watch you nowadays um talk about game of thrones and some of the sex scenes <laughs> in that um, yeah i think there's a lot of scenes
1: in game of thrones where consent issues are certainly coming into <laughs> into I mean, play
4: this is a big thing right so um a lot of people think that most young people are looking at porn. Actually, they're not. Uh, and even those that even those young people who do see sexual images are more likely to see them on the telly. And Game of Thrones is a really good example. There's a huge mm. amount of non-consensual sex in Game of Thrones. And that does concern a lot of the young people looking at it. But it's not. So they're the issues for a lot of young people, not what they're seeing on you porn or uh, yeah, I mean,
1: e- even the sex on Game of Thrones that is ostensibly consensual is all, is, all, it has, is is problematic in some way because yeah. so much of it happens in a brothel or you know between close mm. relatives.
4: So. Well, yes, uh, and it's all it's all the same kinds of bodies as well. You know, very some mm. slim people, and um, yeah. there's very little diversity there, and all of particular age and stuff. It's like,
1: yeah. yeah. You, uh, as you said at the top of the segment, you've been you've been doing this for
4: for some years now. Mm-hmm. Do, th- th- do you think it's got better? Are
1: things moving in the right direction?
4: Uh, in some ways, yes. In other ways, really not. I think there's still a lot of work to do with schools. I mean, the problem with schools, and this is like the political element of this, I guess, is that we are going to get um, mandatory sex and relationships education classes for for young people in schools but there's never been a worse time for that to happen because the charities who are there to deliver it just don't have enough funding at the moment and also a lot of the people who used to deliver this are i've got a youth work background often areas don't have youth services anymore well
1: as ever there's a lot to discuss but we have sadly run out of time so i say thank you to my guest justin hancock uh, and thank you to you out there for listening goodbye hey.